Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Today we have Russ Heddleston, founder of Docsend. Um, I'm sure you've had that moment where you've sent out an attachment and wondered if anyone is actually reading it well. Russ, is, Russ and, his, and, his, uh, and his colleagues have tried to solve this problem by creating uh, links which you send instead of attachments that will allow you to track user behavior. So imagine you send out that important pitch to investors or that important pitch to, um, to, you know, to a new client. You now know how much time they've spent on page one, page two, page three, et cetera, and you know how they've interacted with it overall. Um, it's, you'll hear Russ tell more about it, but it's a very powerful tour, tool and um, um, and you know I think it, it really has the power to change and and as he'll tell you um, make an honest reader out of out of your reader as well. Um, Russ has been riding shotgun in the second wave of the tech boom since he graduated from uh, Stanford in 2006 with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in computer science. Uh, he worked at Trulia and Graystripe, where he was um, the director of engineering prior to going to Harvard Business School. Uh, while he was at Harvard, he launched um, Pursuit, uh, which was absorbed into Facebook, um, and then he left Facebook to start Docsend. Uh, it's a lot of life packed into a decade in the job. It was a lot of fun talking to Russ, a uh, really articulate guest. Here is, uh, here's my chat with Russ Heddleston. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Hey, so Russ, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me here today. Of course, thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, but uh, for our listeners, this is uh, Russ is our guinea pig here on the phone podcast, and uh, from the sounds of my headphones, so far so good. Um, so thanks for joining us all the way from uh, from out west in uh, you know in Silicon Valley. Um, yeah. So Russ, I feel like you're um, kind of the. I don't know. Maybe I'm <laughs> gonna put you uh, put you uh, make you blush by saying it's kind of like the prototype here of uh, of the modern entrepreneur. You know, you you, you studied computer science at Stanford. Um, you know, earned a BA and a, and a master's degree. Um, you did some robotics research there, and and you graduated into a into a fairly robust like tech ecosystem. I, I'm imagining you were just like just knocking away you know recruiters and offers. Um, tell me if I'm wrong. And how did you make your choices as you graduated, presuming there were many offers for you. Uh, yeah, I did. I was fortunate enough to, to get some offers. I'm, but before going to Stanford, I, I'm from South Dakota mostly. So, you know, entrepreneurship and technology were not things that were kind of predetermined for me. Uh, it's just something I, I kind of fell into as an interest when I got to Stanford because it's just kind of in the water there. Everyone's really excited about it. And, you know, like someone made the analogy to me when I was an undergrad that, you know, if you know, railroads in the, you know, at nine, in the 1900s were, you know, like, 
technology today. So it's like I want to be involved in the, the interesting things of our time, and that's computer science. So, um, you know, that's how that's how I got into it initially. When I graduated, I did I did have some other offers, and the the thing that was interesting about entrepreneurship was just that it's it's unknown and interesting things will happen. And so I was actually deciding between um, a big tech company uh, going and being a management consultant at uh, McKinsey uh, or joining this you know, small six-person startup. And uh, I happened uh, to know the lead investor for that company, Graystripe. And I just really liked the team. I liked the opportunity. It made sense to me. And I was just really interested to see where it would go and, and what would happen. So that, that's how I, I ended up picking that one as the, the first job I, I had out of, out of my master's program at Stanford. Wow. So I called you a, pr- a prototype before. And now I'll call you like a poster child for VFA because, um, you know, that's kind of what VFA is all about, um, trying to get people to, to – to spurn the, the the easier path where the recruiters lurk like from uh, from banks and consulting firms and to join six person startups like Graystripe. So so you you joined as the as the um, director of engineering and or did did you join as was that your title when you joined? No 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 that I mean uh, was not no as a as a twenty. One of the 21, 21 year old, 22 year old, uh, joining. Um, I, I joined as like their generalist on the business side, but as a software engineer. So I ended up kind of chipping in, but I, I just wanted to, to help out on, on the business side there. Um, and then we had this snafu where the company grew really quickly, and then the VP of engineering left and took about half the company with him. So it's like one of those battlefield promotions where okay. <laughs> it's like, uh oh. Our engineering team is in trouble. And I was like, "Great, I'll help." So, okay, so, <laughs> so you, could, you quickly I, I, were promoted that Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, like so. I mean, were you daunted by that? That's, I mean, I guess that was my point. I, I guess that you're, you know, tw- early twenties, and 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 you're, you know, in this position with this startup. I and mean, did you feel did you feel ready for it? Um, it, it's all about the context for it, I guess. I think I would have been daunted if someone had, you know, kind of positioned it to me as like, this is really important. So, like, there's a lot of pressure on you. But at the time, I was just the, the best person for the role. So we have we had a really strong and awesome CTO, uh, Andy Choi. Um, so just getting to work with him was really fun for me, and uh, we're really complementary in our skill sets. Uh, and so what I you know worked on versus what he worked on. Um, so it was really more about a partnership and then building the team back. And I'd already been there for a little while, so I had some good context for what was going on. So the set of things that needed to be done was pretty clear. Um, and the title that got put on top of it, you know, director of engineering, was, uh, was was really not as as important. Right, right. And so this is so you you ultimately went went and got your pre MBA. You ultimately went and got your MBA, but your pre MBA at at this point and. Um, you know, I, I mean, some of managing is obviously innate. You don't need to take courses to do it. But, um, you know, how did you how did you find yourself managing members of your team? Like, well, who was who was the who was the pre MBA Russ Edelston? <laughs> uh, it was about the same as the post MBA Russ Edelston. <laughs> um, I, I will say actually that I studied engineering primarily because uh, I was told to go learn a real skill, and I actually always wanted to study business because I think business is fascinating. I think people are fascinating. Um, but the advice I got was good advice, which was go go learn a specific skill and then learn the business of that later on. Uh, and so, you know, I learned the business of software after learning, you know, the fundamentals of how to build software. Um, so, man- managing the team at Graystripe, my, my first manager experience, um, and yeah, there there were a lot of a lot of takeaways I had from that. Managing is really hard. 
I remember I had to put an employee on a performance improvement plan and then ultimately let them go, and that was that was a really hard experience. Um, not sure I dealt with it all that well. I later learned in business school that no one really deals with it all that well. <laughs> right. It was more, more like lowering my expectations about how to do that. Like one-third of all firings end with the person not being fired. I thought that was an interesting stat uh, that I learned in business school. Like It's just hard to do when you get into that meeting. Um, so in retrospect, I did an okay job with that. And then the, the people we brought on, just finding the right people for the right roles and making them happy. My, my takeaway from that was it's primarily about making people feel fulfilled uh, and like they're doing a good job, and then they, they will do a good job. Um, but it was it was more just a, a bit of trial by fire in that particular position. I think, I think one-third of all, so I'm an entrepreneur also, and I think one-third of all... Um, I, I, I fired very, very few people, but I think one third of them have ended up with with me weeping and them consoling me. It's 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 okay. It's, it's okay. You're going to be okay. That's about right. Yeah, it's it, for everybody. It is. It's hor- It's it's absolutely horrible. It's something you just you never get. You can never get used to. I mean, I don't. Maybe some people do, but I, I certainly haven't. Um, so 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 you join you join you know Graystripe and it's this like juggernaut and um, you know it's raising money and and grows to like thirty million dollars in revenue pretty quickly. And then you go to Harvard Business School. Like, what was the thought process in, in leaving Graystripe? And um, you know, was that a really tough decision? Um, it it was a tough decision. I had always wanted to go back to business school, and um, you know, the the company had just kind of reached a point where uh, I, I thought it was best that I, I find a replacement for me. Um, to someone who had more experience in the role, and so it it was just something I wanted to go to go do, um, and it, that was just a good time for it. So I, I had a very good run. I was at Great Strike for three years. Um, I remember in my interview for business school, they asked me like the kind of the same question, like why do you want to go back to business school? And my answer was that I just feel like it's going to be a really interesting couple of years for me. I really want to learn about this stuff. <laughs> like, oh, okay, that, that seems like a pretty good reason. Um, and so that, that's pretty pretty honest. They really did like the content of, of the degree. Um, and I found a really good replacement for me at Graystripe as well, who did an amazing job growing and, and leading the team for the next few years, who's actually the VP of engineering at Pandora now. Hmm. Um, so he's on, gone on to have like a really, really good career. Um, so it it all it all worked out well for for everyone on all sides. So no look no looking back. It was it was the right choice. Yeah, it was the right choice. I was there for a while. They ended up selling the company later. The the industry was consolidating. Um, growth was slowing down a bit. Um, uh, so you know, and I, I wanted to go get some different experiences, having been there for a few years. So um, yeah, it, it worked out it worked out just fine. So you, you went to HBS and. I'm curious, like, did you, did you, when you, I mean, I, I know you just said a second ago, you kind of said, oh, you know, this is, this is just going to be a good experience. I'm going to learn a lot. But did you go in intent on starting a company? Like, what, what was your plan entering business school? Yeah, I, I wanted to try starting a company. And um, my plan was to, to start a company while I was in business school. And my thought process was, well, if the company is successful, then I'll drop out and I'll have a successful company. That's great. And if it doesn't work out, then I'll stay in business school and I'll have an MBA, and that's fine too. Uh, so <laughs> it just seemed like being a student's a really good cover, and it gives you the space to to work on some interesting things. It's it's really hard to think of a business to work on while you have a full time job. Most jobs are you know more consuming than you have hours in the day. So just making room to work on something on the side just isn't really feasible. 
So when I went out to HBS, I had a couple of friends I had worked with before uh, that I'd already chatted with about um, working together again. Um, and so while I was in business school, we, we started a company and, and worked on that uh, for, for a little over a year. That company is called Pursuit.com. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's interesting you say that, and I, I I agree. It's tough to start a business when you when you have a, have a business because business can be all consuming. But so can like school and and you know and and the socializing that comes with school. Like, what were you what were you cutting back on to start Pursuit? Yeah, I, I mean the saying in business school is like you can uh, there's what is it? it's like sleep, partying, and school, you can only pick two of the three. <laughs> so if you throw in startup as a fourth, I think you can still only pick two of the three. <laughs> hmm. uh, so sleep wasn't one of them for sure. Um, it was it was mostly uh, school and the startup. <laughs> those are the things that I, those are the things that I did. Um, I, I didn't get the Baker Scholar Award or anything for, you know, excellence in the classroom. Uh, there's definitely more I could have done preparing um, or doing homework or just, you know, like spending more time with, you know, on things at school. Uh, but I was, you know, just writing code, traveling out to San Francisco, um, you know, kind of building our business uh, and then sitting in the classroom hearing interesting lectures from professors on topics that I wanted to learn about. And I did actually make a lot of really good friends in business school as well, uh, but I, I definitely wasn't leading the charge in terms of socializing or partying. Right. And so, and so okay, so you started Pursuit, which which was described as, as, as a, it's a, a bridging, maybe you can better explain it to me, but bridging social and professional networks as a, as a social referral site. Um, is that an accurate, why don't you explain it instead of me explaining it? <laughs> sure. Well, so I had just come off this experience at Graystripe where I had to recruit an engineering team. And that's really, really, really hard. And the people mostly came from our, our own networks. Um, but referral programs are messy and hard to do and hard to track. So the thought was, why don't we help companies recruit by having a software-enabled referral system for them to use? Um, and it, you know, referral systems continue to be a really great source of candidates for companies. Um, and what we built is, is uh, a feature that could be used in a lot of other systems and is actually used in companies like Greenhouse and Lever and modern-day uh, applicant tracking systems. Um, but that, that was the theory. And so, you know, me and my two co-founders uh, built a prototype. Uh, we signed up maybe like 50 companies to use the thing, did a bunch of interviews, um, and it was a very solid value proposition. So that, that's what we ended up building out. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So Pursuit was was kind of um, was absorbed by Facebook. Um, how did you how did you de how did you and your co-founders like determine that that was a reasonable choice and and um, obviously, Facebook being like like a pretty daunting uh, player in you know in, in any sort of you know referral space um, or any social so any any social space, um, you know how did how did you how did you how did you determine like that, that was the that, that that was that you had taken it to its, its logical end? Yeah, that's really hard. I actually wrote one of my papers in business school, um, which I'm happy to send you as a kind of like a post-mortem, like while I was going through it, kind of a cathartic experience. Because to, to start a company, you have to be fanatically excited about it. Like this is something that has to exist in the world. Like we have to build this. It's going to be amazing. And so we went through the fundraising process. We went through the sales process. We, we built the whole thing out. Um, and 
you know, to reach a point where you you, you kind of recognize the, the facts for what they are and decide like maybe maybe this isn't quite what we thought it would be. In, in our case, the, the the order in which things happened was. Um, like fundraising was fine. We could raise money for this thing. Sales was fine. We could sell this thing. But then when we actually got companies to use this referral system and we were looking at the data, the data did not match up with our expectations. A lot of people got referred to companies out of network. Uh, the referral bonuses that got paid out, people felt weird about money being involved in it. Mm. And when we looked at the numbers and when we did interviews with our customers and the users of it, we, we found a couple logical gaps in our thinking that changed the, the problem statement kind of significantly. And that's the whole exploration process that you, that you need to go through, the trial and error. Um, in the case of our product, what we learned meant that we had to change things pretty significantly. So the question was like, oh man, do we, do we go back and do we, do we start over again? Or you know, like, like how are we gonna change things? Um, and we decided at that point uh, it was worth exploring just getting acquired. So we went and interviewed at LinkedIn and at Facebook. Um, at Facebook we had you know, sold them on, uh, on Pursuit, uh, like using the product for their, for their company. And their response was, you guys are awesome, why don't you come just chat with us? Uh, and so we you know, chatted with LinkedIn as well and decided to, to go with Facebook. It's what you call a talent acquisition where uh, you know, they covered a bunch of our debt and kind of like paid back money and stuff and then you know, made us a really good uh, deal on working there. And the theory on their side was that we were going to help them compete with LinkedIn and build out a more professional side to Facebook. Um, they ended up not doing that, but I, I did end up being the product manager for Pages, which is kind of the, the entity uh, that companies use on the, the Facebook platform. And that was really interesting. We also uh, used our learnings to redo the internal uh, recruiting system at Facebook and their own mm -hmm. referral system. So they got a lot of value out of that as well. Um, but yeah, deciding, deciding to, to shut down Pursuit was, was, a, was a difficult choice, but in, in hindsight, uh, it was the right decision. I, I don't think if we had pushed harder on the way we were building it out, it would have worked out in the end. It's interesting. Like, so this, this, the entire life cycle of pursuit happens while you're in school. Like, it's 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 like almost it's almost an like a like an accelerated uh, like I, I'm imagining a uh, like a, a a mashup or a, you know a bunch of quick cuts on like a in a movie that like accelerates time. Like you just you went through that whole thing. And, <laughs> you know, this is uh, like the the Rocky montage scene or something. Exactly. I, I was going to reference this. I, I was going to reference a Seinfeld scene in which Jerry goes through an entire relationship and about like in, in less than one episode and they show the videos but I I, I I think even Seinfeld is dating me out of this out of our audience at this point um, <laughs> so uh, but yeah I mean it, it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing that you that you had that whole experience while well in business school so um, so that must, I mean there must have, that all those learnings you know have to have been really helpful I mean when you were you know you 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 moved to Facebook as, as, a, as a product manager um, Seeing obviously growth on like a, a a really massive scale. I mean, what, what were the what were the key learnings from your time at Facebook? Oh, I mean, it's it's so different. I, I interned at uh, Microsoft as well when I was an undergrad. I also interned at at Dropbox and really early on. Every every company is so different. So, um, like the, the takeaways for software at scale are, I think, always different. Some things are constant, like just keeping in mind. If you if you're at Facebook scale, like we uh, one of the features we were adding to Pages was um, 
adding uh, friend connections, like which of your friends are connected to this business in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so that friend, like having that social connection, you know, we were thinking would make you more you know, connected to that company. Like, oh, 10 of my friends like Best Buy. That's cool. I guess I like Best Buy, too. Just, just computing and storing that information, what, we had to spin up a bunch of new just server centers, and it was just millions and millions of dollars a year just, just to implement that feature, just in the back-end storage um, that, was, that was required for it. So That's crazy. It, the, the, the types of considerations you had to make when thinking about things were, were different. Also, just at Facebook scale, like how, I, I, Facebook Pages is still the largest business software system in the world. There are more businesses on Facebook than anything else. And it just kind of is a virtue that there are more people on Facebook than anything else. Um, so you know, we redesigned pages. We did the, the timeline design. Just thinking through the considerations of that and the ripple effect through businesses is just pretty, pretty astounding. I will say to Facebook's credit that they do a really good job of allowing the people who are building the products to, to make the right decisions despite the consequences. So um, my, my takeaways from Facebook are, are mostly that they're, they're doing things right, uh, and it's, it's a really impressive company, um, especially because they're able to break things uh, or at least change things at, at, at their scale. So I guess the same question I asked you about Graystripe when you left for HBS, like why leave Facebook? It's, 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 a, you know, it's, it's a sure thing, right? Like you know, it's going, that's a company that's going crazy the you know the share prices continue to, to increase and 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 you walked away again what was the what were the considerations um, so it's kind of similar uh, to working on pursuit there were uh, two of my good friends from undergraduate at Stanford uh, that I had hired on at Graystripe. We, we had said that we wanted to start a company together. Like, we'd like to do this. We'd like to start a company together. It didn't work out uh, while I was in, in business school. Um, they stayed on at Graystripe and uh, were engineering managers there. Um, but while I was at Facebook, you know, they were deciding, they, they wanted to leave uh, the company that had bought Graystripe, um, and they wanted to start a company. So it was, it was more like a kind of when would it align? If not now, when would we actually work together again? Um, so I decided to leave to go work with them. Uh, on on Docsend, um, it just it just seemed like a you know I'd like to go try again. Facebook is a great company, lots of things going for it, no problems with it. But just you know, life is short. If you're going to do it, you might as well go try. And I wanted to work with Dave and Tony again, so decided to to just take the leap. So, are there any when you're when you're starting a business with with friends like that, um, people who've been friends for 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 a long time, um, you know, are there like I, I admit, I'm, I've made the mistake. I tried to start a business with a friend, and I wasn't really evaluating that person on a business level. I was evaluating that person strictly on a friend level. Um, how do you evaluate? How did you evaluate co-founders, co and how did you ensure that you guys could work together and maintain friendships? Yeah, that's that's a great question. <laughs> when I look at my <laughs> friends, like the number of them who would also be good coworkers is small. Uh, so there's some Venn diagram of people you're friends with, people you can work well with, and then there's the overlap is some subset. So there's not that many people fall into both camps. Um, in, in our case, we had already worked together at Graystripe, so we had de-risked it a bit in that sense. Um, and we all studied computer science together, so we had all kind of done classwork together. Um, so I, I both had a sense for how talented they were as engineers, um, and I also had a sense for how well we got along socially. And both both are important. 
Um, I don't think you need to be friends with your co-founders. You just need to work well together. But if you're also friends, that goes a long way creating a nice culture for your company. Um, the, a bunch of our early hires at Docsend were, were also people we had worked with at Graystripe or elsewhere. Uh, and it's just a really good sign. If people have worked together before and choose to work together again, it bodes really well for the company. Um, and so that, that's actually really helped us in recruiting. Um, it also has helped us in, in finding investors. Um, one of our investors was saying that one-third of their investments blow up because the co-founders have an, a, dis- a disagreement of some sort, which is, which is pretty pretty crazy high number. Right. Um, yeah, that, that's that's um, that is that is really interesting. Which leads me to to, to another question about about co-founders and and those blowups. I mean, how do you guys? How do you? I don't know if you've had big inflection points where there've been disputes, but how do you guys work to resolve disputes if there are three of you there? Um, it's it's pretty consensus oriented. We we all uh, we split our equity equally amongst us. Sometimes with co-founders, like someone will be like more important or more in charge and like the puck stops here but the three of us have known each other for so long that it's 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 really we, we make decisions together about things and it, that has its ups and its downs um on the upside it's just nice to be supported by two other people it's very stressful to start a company and to go that whole go through the whole process so to have two other people you can rely on and trust is really helpful uh yeah in, in terms of Decision making, I guess it, it depends. We early on divided up the responsibilities so there wouldn't be too much uh, designed by a committee going on. So, you know, one co founder is the CTO, one co founder runs all the product stuff, and then I do the sales and the like kind of financing and kind of other company stuff. Um, and so, you know, within those areas, people just kind of make decisions and move forward. So you start when you start started Docsend. I mean, was this was this a pain point that you experienced? Uh, like I, I feel like a lot of almost all businesses start from pain points. Like what was what was the genesis of of Docsend? Uh, yeah, that that's a great question. It uh, yeah, I, I do think it's it it it's really nice if you're starting a company and you can relate to the problem you're solving. You know, whenever I see a founder who has no idea what their target user thinks or feels, it's kind of, it's it's a risk. It's definitely a risk. Um, In our case, a few different things came together uh, that made the the idea behind Docsend really attractive. Um, I interned at Dropbox when there were 15 people uh, in the summer of 2010, and we came out with the sharing model, or the schmodel we called it, where you could send links to files. And that that seemed like a really useful thing because you don't want to send attachments. Attachments are awful. Better to send a link. Like okay, and that makes sense. Uh, I also believe that people will always use documents. Um, I was told by uh, some early Microsoft employees that even in the early 90s, uh, Bill Gates was discussing when documents would die. Like when would the when would the the document format go away in favor of some web oriented thing? And we still have the documents. It's like okay, people are still going to create documents. Uh, attachments aren't a good idea. You should send a link to it. And if you're in a business setting, you really want a bunch of other features around tracking and security. Uh, and other things, and um, no other company was was building that at the time. Um, 
Uh, also, while I was at Facebook, we had an internal system called Pixel Cloud that would track um, designs that you sent people. So I did some design work there as well. And so I would send around uh, links in Pixel Cloud. And just getting that feedback on who actually looked at my content was hugely important to me, just being able to do my job well. Um, so we kind of combined all these things and we're like, I think, I think tracking and analytics and security around document sharing is a real thing. And uh, now seems to be a good time to start that company. So you and you and your your co-founders start this business, and um, I, I found this quote from you. Um, I'll read it, even though you know you said it, but our viewers don't, our listeners don't. <laughs> Which is, even once you've convinced yourself you're working on a problem worth solving, it's a long road to making that vision a reality. Being successful takes a lot more time, effort, and patience than is visible from the outside. We've been working on Docsend for over a year, and it's still just the beginning. One year in, what was visible to the outside world, and 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 what did you what did you need to what did people think of Dachshund was, but what 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 was it what was it to you what was viable and and what did you need to work on? Yeah, so one one year in, I guess what what we did when we started is we started with a bunch of interviews. So we didn't sit down and start writing code. We thought that was a bad idea. We wanted to do interviews, so we did a bunch of customer interviews. Figured out the pain pain points, the workflows, and they're like, okay, we've got a theory of Dachshund. Great. So we built a first version. Um, we gave it to some people. They said, we love it. This is great. And we're like, awesome. Okay. Uh, we'd like to hire out a team and like move faster. So we're going to go do fundraising. But I anticipated that if we were going to do fundraising, this is like six months in, that um, the question people would ask is like, well, why isn't Google doing it? Why isn't Microsoft doing this? Um, and so we had to answer that question. And so what I did is I went around to all of the companies that we thought should build out what Docsend does and showed them what we had built and showed them our customers and like, hey, this is obvious that it's obvious that you should build this. Why aren't you building this? Or are you building this? And all of them were like, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. We've, you know, of course, we have this on our idea list, uh, but we're not going to build it now. And then we also got some acquisition offers. And when we asked them what we would work on, we actually, they were actually going to put us on other projects hmm. just because we're a good technical team. And so that told me more than anything that they really weren't going to build out Docsend. It just wasn't a priority for them. So hmm. using that data and the other data, we went off and raised our seed round of funding, uh, $1.7 million. That was six months in. And then six months after that, so one year in, we uh, launched our product at TechCrunch Disrupt in uh, New York City. So in one year, and that was really the first anyone could see of the product. Before that, if you went to Dachshund.com, it was just blank. Uh, you, you use an invite-only kind of testing system that we had. Um, and the first version was very quick and dirty. And then based on the feedback, we built out a really nice, elegant version that was the thing we launched uh, after one year. And so yeah, I think for that quote, that's, that's why that was just the beginning. You know, we've been working on it for a year, and we finally had something to show to the outside world. Can you give me a sense of what that first year was like personally for you? You know, you, were you, uh, was, was sleep still uh, the, the thing you were cutting out personally? <laughs> uh, you, you know, I was actually getting more sleep that first year than I, I was at Facebook. <laughs> okay. um, you know, Facebook, I ended up sleeping at the office <laughs> because there's just so much pressure and so many things going on. When you're working on your own, you, you set your own schedule, especially in you know, the beginning of a company. No, no one's yelling at you. No one's telling you to do anything. It really has to be motivated from within. Right. So in our, in our case... We did work hard. We worked long hours, um, but there were steady hours that we chose. And you know, we rotated apartments. Uh, so one day we'd go to Dave's place, one day we'd go to Tony's place, we'd go to my place. 
and you know we'd all just sit around the table and we'd set our schedule and we kind of like set our goals and you have to be very self motivated and there's no feedback there's no positive feedback from the outside no one's telling you this is fantastic you're already successful you, you have to tell right. yourself that uh, you get a lot of no's from pretty much everybody uh, especially if you're doing something that people don't know they need um, so yeah it, it takes a lot of discipline um, and if you were to look at it from the outside, it's it's hard to tell the progress is being made even. Right. Especially with a software business because you're just sitting around typing. And, it's, and you raised the $1.7 million. And um, have you guys subsequently raised any money? Uh, we, we have raised subsequent money that we haven't announced yet. Um, but we're also we're also generating revenue. Got it. Um, so... You know the, the the combination of the two ha- has worked out well for us. The 1.7 million though was really critical at the beginning, just to move faster, to be able to hire ahead of our revenue and to focus on building a good product, not on optimizing a uh, small amount of revenue. How quaint that you're you're uh, you're, you're generating revenue. Uh, <laughs> like, how quaint? How, how old-fashioned of you, you know, to be yeah. to be trying to make money. Uh, that, that's that's crazy. <laughs> I think you're like one of the first tech companies we've had on here. Is like who's who's like just yeah, we're, we're we're raising money. We're trying to be, be a real business. Is, is there is there any additional pressure on now? I mean, the things have kind of changed in the last couple of months. Is there any additional pressure on you to 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 to, to be profitable? Um, no, we we still have enough cash where profitability isn't the uh, immediate concern. Um, it's just all about how fast can you grow, how fast can you scale. So you know if. Can we hire out a team of 50 salespeople, or do we, can we spend a ton of money on, you know, uh, SEM? Um, so there are a lot of experiments that we're running. The, the product is growing really quickly. People really like it. Um, we have a really big product roadmap. Um, so yeah, there, there are a bunch of things that we're working on in parallel. Um, but yeah, profitability isn't isn't immediate concern. But yes, we always want to make more money. So. <laughs> Like, if we if we suddenly turn profitable, I'd be very happy about that. Right, <laughs> sort of refreshing. Uh, and you know, it's, it, well, it's, it's interesting to talk about the product roadmap and how you know you went to all these other companies as they were, you know, talking to them about like, hey, does this make sense? And it's like kind of on on their radar screen. I mean, how do you how do you? There must be just an endless number of features um, that you want to add to your own. You know, to 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 Docsend. Like, how how do you how do you make those choices? Is it is it just super obvious, or is it just a a, a constant internal debate as to where to take the product? Uh, yeah, that's another great question. I think it depends on the type of product that you have. So, for some companies that are very vertically oriented, um, if you're selling to a very specific target user, then that user dictates your roadmap, and it's it's pretty obvious what you need to add and in what order. Um, if you have a really horizontal product, those are much more difficult mm-hmm. to to decide on what features to build if you're trying to be everything to everybody. Um, so in, in our case, it is a pretty horizontal product, but we've, pick it, we've picked a, a vertical uh, salespeople uh, that we specifically build for. So we prioritize their input over uh, other input. And... Uh, you know, so that that's how we we dictate our our product roadmap, and the the things that matter the most to them are the things that we will prioritize in the product. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. 
This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. When you raised your round of funding, um, you know, did you like you you had a prototype that was that was working? Um, I, did you have the data to back up how people were interacting with your own presentation, and were you changing your presentation according to the feedback that you got from your own program? If that makes sense, I don't know. I think I just ended up in some loop somewhere. But <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, it is something of a self-referential product. Right. We could use our we and we certainly did use our own product in our in our fundraising process. Um, and yeah, and yes, the the data was really important. Uh, we actually published some research earlier this year on best practices in fundraising because it's it's hard to tell as a individual entrepreneur when you're sending around your pitch deck like what like what should be in your pitch deck the the useful feedback is more immediate on like which investors looking at which investors care who should i follow up with making sure the thing is secure you're turning it off later uh, so we we used it uh, in in that way which is a bit more anecdotal um, but yeah for instance we found that the team slide was by far the most popular slide so we put that one all the way at the beginning uh, I also found that the second most popular slide was this slide that was like anecdotes about what we are. It's like it's a like Google Analytics plus Dropbox. It's like you know had like five different like we're A for B, um, and the fifth one I think said we're like like cat insurance plus Asana, and it had an asterisk <laughs> next next to it in the bottom. It said just kidding, like we don't even know what that product would be, uh, but it was just kind of in there to make sure investors were actually reading things. And that was the second most popular page, so we put that one up at the beginning. Um, so we, we did we did make those modifications based on uh, the time that people were spending inside the deck. Were investors saying to you, like, well, I'm intrigued by this doc send thing, but wait a second, I think you've customized this presentation so that I will be intrigued, so maybe I'm not that, <laughs> not that intrigued by this after all. Uh, we did have one investor who uh, opened the. Opened, uh, whenever I would ask for um, intros to, to people, or I, I get intros, like they, we, we'd send them a link to the deck, and I wouldn't really say anything. Hey, we're looking to raise money. Here's what we're working on. Here's the here's our deck uh, with a link, and um, and so they'd have to read the deck to see what we were working on. And one investor opened it up, just looked at the team page, um, and we have a good team, uh, but then he didn't look at anything else. And so he responded to me like, Hey, I love what you're working on, and I can't wait to hear more. I forwarded to my colleagues. But right. I, I knew from the data that he didn't actually know right. what we were doing. Uh, all he did was look at the team page and then decide based on that that he would like to learn more, which is fine. It's just funny that he phrased it as, I, I, like, I like what you're working on. Uh, and so he did, in fact, forward us to his colleague, and his colleague thought that was funny when I shared that with them. Did they, did, were they ultimately part of the uh, investor group? Uh, no, well, we ultimately did not uh, let them. That, that, they were more of an A-round investor anyway, and that was our seed round. Gotcha. Um, <clears throat> that would have been it. Would have been quite the story, <laughs> like the inspirational story for others. Like, don't worry if no one's reading your presentation. Just make sure it ends up in the right hands of somebody who is willing to look at it. Well, actually, our um, lead investor from our seed round, Jeff Clavier, uh, I went back later and looked at the data, and he didn't actually ever look at our deck. Um, <laughs> but his colleagues did, and then we pitched him in person, and then he actually turned around and started using our product immediately. It was just funny to me that he never actually looked through the link that I had sent him on DocSend. Are, um, are, are, are people afraid to like to to like? Do you have family members who are like? Wait a second, he will know if I've read this. 
you know, like are, are, are your friends like skeptical of you that you've got like all this? I mean, I recognize that your, your system works through links, but are people sort of suspicious of communications with you? Like, oh boy, I better read this because <laughs> Russ sent it. I guess that'd be more like the email tracking thing. Right. Uh, no, I mean, like we're, we're solving a very specific need that only really exists in business communications. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a tool that I'd use with my sisters or my family <laughs> uh, or my close friends. Like, it's, it's just not how those relationships work. Right. Um, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not sending them documents anyway. Um, so yeah, it's when we look at our usage, it's really only used in business transactions. I can imagine that working in my family quite well. You know, my brother, my brother, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe me, your family, it's a good fit. My brother sending me something saying like, I want to know you read this. I, I want to know you're not just saying like, okay, let's go on a family trip. Fine. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, I, I'm, so I'm curious. Like, you know, you, you gave us a little bit of insight in terms of how people interact with with presentations, but I mean, you know. Like, what, what have you learned about, about human behavior? Like, how much time will we spend? Per, what's a lot of time to spend on a, on a I don't know, a t- what's, what's, a, what's a long presentation? Is, is there, what's the length of a, how, what is, okay, I'm asking 50 questions and tripping over myself. <laughs> how, how long right, can a presentation be? Exactly. Yeah, take a breath. How long can a presentation be? Like, can, I, can, can someone receive a 20-page presentation these days? Could, is it, what's the optimal size? How much, what's a, what's a lot of time for someone to spend on a presentation at this point? Yeah, well, so we have all types of documents in our system. So, you know, if you're, if you're sending like a, a Dickens novel or something, you know, that's going to be a different read time than a pitch deck is different than a product proposal. Um, okay, so let's go with pitch deck. Sure. Pitch, so if I'm, how, what's, the, what's the longest a pitch deck can possibly be? And what's a lot of time <laughs> for someone to spend on a pitch deck? Um, a lot of time is anything over four minutes. Okay. So when we, when we did this research, we we looked at uh, you know we had a bunch of companies opt in to to this research and then you know they you know allowed us to look at some of their stats um, and so we found that the average successful deck was read for three minutes and forty four seconds. Okay. <laughs> and and so a lot of people are like, wow, that's that's not very long. That I mean, people should spend more time on things. Uh, people are actually incredibly efficient at flipping through information and making a decision on if they want to learn more and and dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And ironically, the longer someone spends in your presentation, the worse it is for you. Hmm. Because the, the decks that were the most successful, like our deck had an average read time of about two minutes. Um, and this was confusing for us. So as we dug deeper, what we found was that the decks that were the most successful seemed obvious. Like if I was to read your pitch deck and it looked obvious to me, like, well, obviously this is a thing that should exist in the world. Like, why hasn't someone done this before? Like, of course. Like, I'm kind of left without, without any objections. Right. Like, those are the ones that are the most successful. It's actually really hard to create one of those. It's hard to create a deck for a business that doesn't exist, and it's obvious that that business should exist. Hmm. The, the decks that had the most time spent in them were the ones where the readers weren't really sure what was going on, and they actually spent the most time on the product pages because it wasn't even clear what the product did. Uh, so that's a, that's a bad sign. If someone's spending you know, 10 minutes in your deck, I guess it's nice that they're giving you the compliment of spending that much time trying to figure it out, figuring out what you do, but uh, it's probably not a good sign. It's, you should probably make your messaging clearer. Is there, so you've been around for two years. Is, have, has anything changed? Like, do you have enough... Can you look and say, yeah, in 2013, you know, people spent, you know, four minutes and now they spend three and a half and, you know, it looks like they're going to spend. Is there any predictability from the data? Um, it, it hasn't changed um, from, from what, we, what we've looked at. Uh, we, we don't, 
I mean, obviously there are a lot of privacy concerns with everything in our system. So we, we don't, other than in this like fundraising research, that, that's really the only glimpse into, you know, kind of average read times that we have. Um, but those those spanned a six month period, and they were they were pretty constant. I haven't seen anything in the market um, lately that would lead me to believe that any of those numbers have changed. The biggest thing we've seen shift has been just social norms. So you're asking, like, you know, does your family behave differently if they know you're tracking them? <laughs> uh, if we take as a microcosm the relationship between entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. We've basically created a new social norm where VCs can expect to get docs and links to pitches. And this changes behavior in a number of ways. Nice. Uh, the first is that they just accept getting these links. Like, this is, a, this is how you're going to get these links. So that's, that's how it is. Uh, and then second, because they know that the other person is going to see their viewing behavior, they won't, for instance, open it up at 2 a.m. Mm. and look through it. They're like, oh. Well, that's kind of embarrassing. They know I'm still working. Okay, I'm gonna look at it in the morning, and like, ugh, I can't spend too little time in it because that that's offensive. And this is an intro from someone else, so I need I need to spend enough time reading it that they know like I'm, it's a respectful read through of their deck. And so it it actually motivates good behavior, um, which which has just been an interesting equilibrium to reach. That's very that's that's a, that's that's a very interesting uh, you know offshoot of the intent. That that's that's a really interesting insight. What uh, I, I'm curious if you. Like are, when you when you do you experience time differently now? Like if you're if you're sitting you know through a TV show or a play or I don't listen to a speech, are you like no? I know you've got to get this information in earlier, and I know you got to move through this faster. Like it, does this translate into you know into into other audio visual experiences? Oh uh, well, this is completely divorced from from Docsend, but I, I do think in general that storytelling is is difficult. And there are there are good ways to do it, and there are bad ways to do it. Um, so, being able to hold the attention of an audience is is hard, and you have to really know your audience. So, for just looking at you know pitch decks or documents, you, you'll see in the data if you lose someone because it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting. You're you're seeing them watching them going through your content. Uh, if you're in a face to face meeting, they can't really zone out and start doing email, or they might, but that's really rude. Um, so you're not really sure when they're when they mentally kind of switch off if you're being boring. Uh, but you can see that if they're looking through it on their own, and you'll see where they fall off. So if you're trying to tell a good story and you want them to consume all the content, y yeah, you, you need to present it in the right order. So you, the same thing exists in movies and other mediums. Um, yeah, so it's definitely something that passes through my mind, but I, I think it kind of passes through all of our minds. If we're watching a movie, it's got a really slow middle to it, and it's like, yeah, this is probably not the best way to, to get through this part. Right. So we're we're at the we're at kind of the beginning production, right? We're, you're just just under under two years old, um, and uh, or just under, or am I just over two two years old? Uh, we're about two and a half years yeah, old. Yeah, just over two years old. Sorry. Um, and uh, you know what what is what what does the future hold for production? Well. A lot of things. Um, I think every phase of a company is, is really different. Uh, especially being a founder, your job kind of changes every few months. Uh, it's never it's never the same. That's for sure. Um, so you know, we're we're up to 14 people now. We've got a bunch of positions open that we're hiring for. So you know, as the team grows, it's it's kind of going back to you know management challenges, keeping everyone happy. Um, you know, office space, logistics. Now we have a sales team. Um, finances become more more difficult to manage. So just across all fronts, growing things, uh, breaking processes, remaking them. Um, but we're you know just on track to to build a large 
you know, profitable business. Um, and so that's what we keep what we keep building for. Uh, everything takes longer than you think it does, though. So uh, it, it is it is still the beginning. And looking forward, it's like ah, oh, there's there's a, there's a ton left to do. Right. What 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 uh, what keeps you up at, at night at this point? Oh, um, there are a lot of things. Uh, it it's hard to know you know, kind of the optimal ordering of things that you should build, um, you know, how, how should you allocate resources. So, you know, they're just the, the product bets that we have to make um, are important. And, you know, software is really hard and costly to change. So uh, there, are, there are far-reaching implications to what we choose to build. So we spend a lot of time thinking about that. But, but otherwise, you know, it's just people. Like a company is a set of great people that you've assembled. So keeping everyone happy, keeping everyone motivated, um, like those, those are the day-to-day challenges that keep me awake. And do, do, you, do you operate with any particular business philosophy or is it just, you know, day-to-day let's go? Or is there some sort of guiding principle in the way, you know, you're trying to grow and manage Docsend? I, I would actually love to hear what other people's answers are to that question. I'll start asking <laughs> it. This was, this was an improv question. So also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think everyone who's a founder or manager is kind of looking around being like, what, what's everyone else doing? What are, what are the other best practices? Um, yeah, we don't have a particular philosophy. Uh, I mean, some people will spell it out and they'll have like some acronym that's on the wall that stands for, you know, like honesty, integrity, hard work, and you know, empathy or something. Um, so far, we haven't had to codify it, uh, being a team of 14 people, but we, we will have to. Um, I, haven't, I haven't learned at any other company uh, that having a philosophy like that that's up on a wall is, is needed or helps a lot. But my sense is that to have our culture scale as we ourselves continue to grow faster, we, we will have to codify it. We will have to put it up. But at the moment, it's, it's really just been hire good people, kind of tackle problems day to day. Um, and, and that's been working well for us so far. Awesome. I, uh, I want to thank you for your time. I, we're bumping up against time, and, and uh, this was really interesting, and I appreciate you, uh, you joining us and being our, our phone guinea pig, and maybe we'll be able to, to check in with Docsend in the future. Thanks so much, Russ. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for having me on. is a time of renewal so why not refresh your home with a little help from blinds.com we make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact choose from premium blinds shades and shutters we even have options for your patio too Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.